Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this morning and the moving of your spirit. We pray that you would open our hearts to your word, not just to know it, but also to live it out. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, soften the places where we have gone uh, hard and bitter. Lord, that you would uh, move and speak in the places where we need your guidance and your voice and your life in our lives. And Jesus, we ask that uh, as we are gathered in this place to orient our thoughts towards you, we thank you that you turn your heart towards us. And we thank you that you've done that uh, in the ultimate way by going to the cross for our sins. And so we pray this morning, Lord, as we think about who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us, that we would grow more deeply in a love for you, that our imaginations would be expanded, Lord, as we consider the mystery of who you are. Lord, that we would recognize your holiness and your otherness and then marvel at the fact that you've chosen to come and live among us. Lord, we thank you that uh, you're patient and you're gracious with us. Would you speak to us now, we pray in your name. Amen. This is Trinity Sunday, and I thought it would be good for us to think about the doctrine of the Trinity and what does that mean for us as a church. Why do, why do Christians believe in Trinity? And if, if we do, what difference does that make? And I want to think about why we hold to this, because there's a lot of other religions and a lot of cults, a lot of Christian cults that will attack the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and sometimes we haven't thought about an answer to those questions. And uh, there's a lot of common questions or common objections to the doctrine of the Trinity. Why do we believe that God is three in one? And you might think, uh, why does that even matter? Well, I think it matters, first of all, because we want to actually pay attention to the way in which God has revealed himself to us. And if we want to take scripture seriously, then we want to discover the way in which God chooses to speak about who he is and the difference that makes in our lives. That's the first thing I think I would say is that we care about what God has said and we want to take that seriously. But the second thing is that if you're a Christian and uh, you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to the door or uh, you've had friends and family ask you about why you believe what you believe, you have maybe had to answer questions or consider something regarding the Trinity. And uh, it's good for us to think about how to respond to that in some way. Uh, as I mentioned, a lot, of, a lot of groups that don't believe in the Trinity have often thought really well about it, and we sometimes don't. So what I'm going to do is, is start with a few of the, the common questions that people have about the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and then we're going to establish Trinity biblically. And so what we're going to do is instead of having just one key passage, I'm not going to preach just Jesus' baptism. We're probably going to jump around a bit and talk about how the Bible reveals God as uh, three in one in relationship. And then uh, we're going to go back to these questions and sort of address them once we're sort of equipped to think about them well. But so here's some common, common questions about the Trinity. Probably the first one is someone might come and ask you, why do you believe the Trinity? Uh, if you say you're, you believe in the Bible, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. And you as a Christian might go, I didn't know the word Trinity wasn't in the Bible. Oh my goodness. What do I do with that? 
Uh, and maybe you think, oh my gosh, maybe it's not biblical. And someone made this up somewhere along the way. What are we doing with ourselves, right? Or maybe you may hear someone who actually knows some Bible verses. They may ask this question. In John 17, Jesus says that the Father is the only true God. Or perhaps in John 14, 28, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. If those things are true, how can Jesus be God? Or perhaps you may turn to Colossians 1.15, which says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Doesn't that mean that Jesus is the first thing created? The first one created by God? Actually, in a, in a fairly recent survey in the last couple of years, asked Christians to say yes or no to the following statement. The statement was this. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God the Father. And 78% of evangelical Christians said yes. If that's what you believe, you're not a Christian. That's what, that's what Jehovah's Witness believe. We don't believe that Jesus is created. Another objection might be, well, how come Jesus just doesn't come out and say he's God? And I've heard people say that. Well, how come Jesus, why doesn't he just do something really dramatic, you know, so no one can question that he's God? Well, he did. It's called the cross. It's just that you might not want to realize what that means about the kind of God that we serve. So a person may ask these sorts of questions and come to a position that the Trinity is not biblical and maybe it was made up by Constantine or someone else in a church council in the three or four hundreds and something to do with that. What do we do? So I want to look at why we believe what we believe uh, and kind of ground ourselves in that. Uh, Trinity Sunday, it's interesting, follows after Pentecost Sunday very intentionally because if you're kind of walking through the church year, you believe in God the Father and then you kind of hit Christmas, which is a lot about Jesus the Son, right? And then you hit early in the year and then you hit Lent and Easter, which is also you've walked through sort of the gospel and then you hit Pentecost and you're talking about the Holy Spirit and so now you've kind of done all three. And so the church wants to kind of pause and reflect on that. Here's the first thing that we need to think about when we think about who God is. Uh, it's a pretty simple question, I suppose. Um, how, many, how many gods do we believe in? We're not sure. We don't, we're not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned at this point. How many, how many gods do we believe in? There's one God. Good. Okay. <laughs> Good. Biblical Christian faith, this is the orthodox, historic, confessing faith of the church for over 2,000 years, and for the Jewish people, for long before that, for the last four or 5,000 years, holds that there is one and only, one true, one only living God. And that's called monotheism. You may you probably know that. Mono meaning one, theism meaning God. I was thinking about this, right? When you think about marriage, we think about monogamous or polygamous, right? Monogamous, mono is one. Polygamous, many, means lots of potential lovers, right? Mono, one. I don't know what that means for the disease. Mono, when you get mono, you're just one really sick person. I'm not sure. But monotheism, this is the first sort of foundational truth. If you think about for Jews, back to Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema, it's sort of the charter for the Jewish people. Or you may think of what God says in Isaiah 43, verse 10. He says, before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. 
It's not as though we worship one god among many gods who's sort of better than the others, but there is no other gods at all. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, God says, I am the first, I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And so God rejects the notion of polytheism. This is why God warns Israel when they enter the land of Canaan to be so careful of their relationships with their neighbors, lest they turn from being monotheistic to polytheistic, that they start to think there's other gods worthy of worship. And of course, what happens? Israel goes headlong into it. And soon they start worshiping all sorts of idols. And this grieves God's heart, because not only is it a sort of adultery to turn from the one who loves you, but it's also just simply foolish and wrong to start to serve something that isn't worthy of worship. It's not worthy of, of the, the, the response that we can give as only we can as God's created uh, people. So there's some practical implications for our lives as Christians who are monotheistic. We believe in one God. And that's the first one, is that any kind of serving of something else with your life is really just foolish. If there's any other sort of thing that is vying for ultimate attention or obedience in your life, and there will be a temptation to do that, anything else that tries to become like an idol in your life, you want to seriously reevaluate your relationship with that thing. And it may be, it could be all kinds of things. You can make an idol out of anything. Anything that takes center place in your heart over God can be an idol. So whether that's how you perceive your work and the value of your work and, and you know, sort of the, the status and influence that you feel about yourself through your work. That's a, that's a, can sometimes be a temptation, especially for us as men who are often very sort of work-oriented, you know. Um, not that women can't be. But uh, we often derive our identity from our doing and have a hard time when we can't do the thing that we like to do. Um, so anything other than God alone can become a dangerous idol. And so we always want to reevaluate that. It can be money. It can be a relationship. All sorts of things. The second thing follows naturally from that is that God alone deserves our ultimate obedience and our worship and our affection. This is why Deuteronomy 6.5, right after saying God is one, there's one God, says this. This is a familiar passage. We shall love the Lord our God with all of our what? Our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Basically, all of your being is for God. And all of your living can be like an act of worship for God. Your worship is not just contained to a half hour of praise music on a Sunday morning. But your life itself is made to be worshipped for God. The way you choose to live. The way you care for kids and the way you, you go to work. And the way you live out your marriage and the way you buy groceries. All of that can be opportunity to live for God. So we believe in one God. That's the first thing. We're monotheists. But as we read through scripture, the nature of God begins to be sort of progressively revealed. And we start to see moments where the one God is described as three persons. And you go, that's complicated. It's a little bit weird. Three persons who share the same divine nature, one God, and yet are different in role and in relationship. And so the New Testament continues to affirm there's only one God, continues to affirm monotheism, but also asserts the full deity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, but three persons. 
And this is where we can get kind of hung up in all sorts of wrong ways. In fact, the church early on in her history had to battle against heresies where some would say, yes, we believe in one God, but Jesus isn't fully divine, right? Or, um, or maybe we don't believe in one God anymore. We believe in three gods. And so the church had to constantly kind of battle against these different ideas as they came up. And they still exist to some degree today. We don't believe in three parts of God. We don't believe that God has three modes, that he sort of switches modes. Sometimes he's in father mode, and then he, like, takes off his father mask and then puts on, like, the sun mask and goes into sun mode, you know? And then he takes that mask off and goes into Holy Spirit mode. No, we don't believe That's called modalism. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in three gods because then we'd be in trouble with the monotheism part of the Bible, right? We believe in one God who exists forever as three persons in relationship. So you are one being and one person. And God is one being with three persons. So there's a one, there's one what. When you ask what is God, there's one what of God and three who's in God. The one what and the three who's. The essence of God and three who's in relationship within the one essence. And that may make you pause and go, God's really different from us. Yeah. Yeah, he is. He's really different. He's something else. And that's where the sort of the common analogies can start to break down. Some people will say, well, God's like a clover. He's like a three-leaf clover. And sort of like each leaf is like a part of God. But each leaf is still fully clover. And, um, you know, it's like, eh, nah, not really. Because, like, if you, you can't take the bits apart, you know. And we don't believe, we believe they're fully God, all the full fully clover. Jesus is fully clover, not just one leaf of clover, you know. He's fully cloverness the whole time. Uh, so some people will use another analogy like, well, God is like um, water, right? He's like steam and liquid water and ice. And there's kind of three modes of waterness. And God's sort of those different ones. It's like, yeah, well. But, but they don't have any, there's no love between the water and the steam, right? There's no relationship in any of that analogy. So it's, it's helpful rather than using kind of weird analogies to actually just look at what does the Bible actually tell us about God himself. And central to this idea of love and relationship within God, which we, which we heard in, in Jesus' baptism, we'll come back to in a minute, is this idea that God is relational in himself. God is not just sort of a mysterious force. Unfortunately, God is not like the force in Star Wars. I mean, that would be very fun, but he's just not. We can't just sort of wield him to do our will, right? And God is not like a genie where you can just sort of ask things and God will just magically fulfill them somehow. Even if you say certain magic words, God doesn't necessarily respond to that because God's not sort of a force or a formula to be manipulated. But God is a person. God is personal. And a person is only a person and personal when they're in relationship with other persons. We may think, actually, no, I won't tell that story. That's too involved, sorry. Uh, when I was in a pastoral care class, we were talking about um, how in the moment of conception, we would believe that the, the, a baby is a full person, right? There's full personhood in the, in the baby. But also the personhood is, is linked directly to the relationship between the baby and the mother. 
and how once the cell has sort of attached uh, and is present in the uterus and is connected to the life-giving source of the mother, that there is relationship and personal exchange that starts to happen between the baby and the mother. Um, and so, yeah, more than just a bunch of cells, right? This is a full person here uh, in relationship with someone else. God is in, rela there's relationship, this is what's kind of mind-blowing. There's relationship and community within God himself. That the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And that relationship is happening in, in the very life of God. And the practical implication of that for us is that we're made for relationship because God himself is a relational God. Our personal relationships, therefore, deeply matter because there's something in our relating to another that actually models or can model or can terribly not model the love between God, uh, between the Father and the Son, the love that God shows to us. We have the opportunity to extend a similar kind of all-embracing love to people around us. And this is why Christians for centuries believed so deeply in hospitality. That if we love each other, we're also meant to love those around us. And so our love is always ever-expanding and, 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 and further embracing, especially of those who we don't always know. And so there's a long tradition in the church of embracing and loving the stranger or the sojourner, uh, inviting them to the table. And that's why, so this is theologically, why we do soup and buns. It's not just to have a fun meal, but it's because relationship and sharing and food together is right at the core not just of the church that's at the heart of god that there's relationship and love shared in god himself and that requires cultivation that's why sin is so serious because sin breaks down the relationship between us and god the relationship that we're made for uh, is broken or shattered i want to now turn to jesus baptism so if you have your bibles open flip with me back to Matthew 3 Matthew 3 13 to 17 and in this passage we really see the Trinity in action there's one God at work but we see a loving relationship and we also see various roles at work in Matthew's report of Jesus baptism so what happens well we have the person Jesus right who's baptized verse 16 immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God, pardon me, descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. The invisible Holy Spirit takes visible form. Why? So that uh, Matthew and John the Baptist, who's there, but Matthew can write to us and John can witness the Father anointing the Son with the Holy Spirit. Why is this happening? Because God is anointing the Son, the Father's anointing the Son, as Israel's Messiah, as the long-awaited king, as the humble servant. And then we get the voice from heaven. The Father announces, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. See, for all eternity, the Father and the Son have loved each other. This is John 17, 24. Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. And so at Jesus' baptism, the Father proclaims or declares his love over his son. And we see the Spirit at work in that anointing, that calling of consecrating of the Son. Again, the, test, the both Testaments, the Old and the New, insist there's only one God 
we start to see, especially at moments like this of Jesus' baptism, that there are three persons at work. The Son is baptized, the Father is speaking and declaring, and the Spirit is anointing. How do you make sense of that? Well, the Trinity makes sense of that as three persons in communion. Where else do we see the divinity of Jesus and the relationship of the Trinity? If you want to look at Acts 20, verse 28, the context there is Paul is, is worked with the Ephesians in the, uh, the church in Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to the elders of that church, and he knows he won't see them again. And in his farewell address, this is Acts 20, 28, he tells the leaders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Well, God sets up leaders, and God establishes his church. And yet we're being told here the Holy Spirit has made these people overseers. The Holy Spirit is doing what God does. Why? Because God, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is God, by the way, right? Then listen to this. This is the rest of Acts 20, 28. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. God's own blood. Did God die on the cross? Yes. God the Father didn't die on the cross. We know that because we have God the Son talking to God the Father while he's on the cross. The church of God bought with his own blood. And Paul is affirming here very early on, not later, not centuries later, making something up, but early on right away, Jesus is fully God. He's Yahweh among us. And the Spirit is fully God, present among us. Or you might think of a passage like 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. There's this fleeting sort of phrase that says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now some people have said, well, that's two different people. By the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. But to do that is actually to break one of the Greek grammar rules in that passage. It's not that. It's our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just like my wife is my wife and mother of my children, Sarah Modio. It's not my wife and the mother of my children. It's two different people, right? No. <laughs> Yeah, I hope not. Pretty sure. One person. In fact, in the Jehovah's Witness uh, version, the New World version, they purposely break the grammar rule and switch that verse because they don't believe Jesus is fully divine in the same way God the Father is. So that's why if, if you're talking to a JW and they'll say, yeah, I believe in Jesus as the Son of God, um, you can say, oh, I believe that too. Well, you mean very different things. Uh, Jehovah's Witness believe Jesus is a Son of God. And that you can be like that too, by the way. You can become like a little god, like Jesus. Ah, that's getting sketchy. Uh, so, you know, you have to do some theological gymnastics with the text to get to that point. What about that question where, where people might ask, why doesn't Jesus just say he's God straight out? We have Paul saying that he's God later on. Why, why doesn't Jesus just say that? Well, actually, Jesus does say it really strongly. Think of a passage like John 8. In John 8, Jesus is discussing his identity with people. Uh, and there's all sorts of responses to him. And along the way, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, and you may know the answer to this, I am. Or before Abraham was, you could translate it, I am ising. I, I am ising. I am being. That he's eternally existed. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. This very important phrase, ego eimi. 
And if you looked at the Greek translation of Isaiah this, in the Septuagint, which, which the people, the Jewish people were very familiar with in Jesus' time, in Isaiah 43.10, Yahweh says that you may know that I am, that I am ego eimi. And so when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am ising, I am ego eimiing, he's saying, I'm Yahweh showed up in your backyard. And what are you going to do about it? This is Yahweh among you. And later on in John 8, 24, he says, he ups the ante even more. He says, if you do not believe that I am ego eimi, you will die in your sins. You have to believe that he is the I am. So if you were to say, someone asked, does Jesus never claims to be God? Yeah, he really does. That's what he does right there. And of course, everyone gets it because what do they try to do to him? They try to kill him. Why? Because it's blaspheming. Because he's saying he's God. Right? So they take up stone. He, either he's crazy or blaspheming or it's actually true. But you can't just say you know, in the middle. Either he's telling the truth, and oh my goodness, it's God in the flesh among us, or he's lost his mind and actually thinks he is, and that's impossible. That's why they, they, you know, they try to kill him on the spot in a mob attack. They try to come at him. They know what he's claiming. He very decisively says, I'm God. I'm the, I am the I am. Ego me. And then, of course, we've got the very familiar passage, and this is probably one of the last ones we'll turn to, is John 1. And John 1 is just a beautiful beginning uh, to the first chapter. John is, John is purposely framing his gospel, similar to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And here in John 1, we get, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And John goes on to describe the word come in flesh. This is Jesus come to be with us. But he says early on, in the beginning was the word. That this son, Jesus, is eternally preexistent. He didn't come into being when he was born in the manger, so to speak. He's already there, and he's with God. Not only is he God, but he's with God. There's a distinction made within God himself that there's a relationship going on. So not only is the word fully divine, we have monotheism happening, but we also have a witness to God. The word was with God, and yet the word was God. Not a God, but was fully God. And so you have monotheism, the oneness of God, but you also have three persons. I mentioned this already, the idea of ever-expanding love. But we, we talk about the phrase that God is love, right? God is love. If that's true, love can only happen if there's a subject and an object. Um, even if you say you love yourself, then you're just narcissistic in some ways probably, but uh, you're the object of your own love, right? If we say God is love, then there has to be an object to the love of God. And if we say, well, uh, that object didn't come into existence until God created people, well, now we've run into a problem because that means that God needs people to be God. 
that God needs someone to love, and that's why he created us. And that would mean that God is not whole in and of himself unless he's created someone to love. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is whole and complete and full of life and joy in and of himself. He doesn't need us to be fulfilled. I need other people to be fulfilled, but God doesn't need me to somehow satisfy him in some way. That was the old Greek pagan thinking, that gods need us. Uh, we'll offer sacrifices to the gods. The gods need us as slaves to kind of do their dirty work. And that's what the humans were. But the Bible teaches, no, no, God creates us, not because he somehow needs us or he's lonely and he's out sort of in the cosmos by himself, but that God creates us out of his love, out of his all-embracing love. That's why I said in community, the love that we share is meant to be ever enlarging and embracing. God, God doesn't make us so that he has someone to love. There's already love within God, in himself, between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so in God, you actually have community and relationship in himself. God can be love because there is a loving relationship at the very center of who God is. And only the Trinity really makes sense of that. If you just have a God with no Trinity going on, then you have a God who needs us as the objects of his love to be love. And that runs into all sorts of issues. And so the Bible, when the Bible describes God or describes Trinity, they're describing that love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so we could say, we've looked at a few verses, we could say we believe the Trinity because we believe the Bible. Or we believe the Trinity because we want to take the Bible seriously and how it reveals the full divinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, and yet affirms over and over one God alone. That Jesus is God, but he's not the Father. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are not the interchangeable, so to speak. The Son dies for our sins, not the Father or the Spirit. The Father sends the Son, and the Son, after his ascension, with the Father sends the Spirit. And yet, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Spirit is fully God. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. To love Jesus is to love God. To receive Jesus is to receive God. To have the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you is to have the righteousness of God. We can talk about the Holy Spirit as well. I think I, I won't spend as much time there. Throughout the New Testament, there's, when the Spirit speaks, it's not an it. There's, it uses personal pronouns. And so uh, this is a point where the Spirit says, um, set apart for me. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, or uh, you've blasphemed against him, the Holy Spirit, the sense in which uh, the Spirit is not an it, but a person. I think of Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, where he says, we baptize in the name, singular, not names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We baptize in the name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we don't believe in modalism, which denies the three and overemphasizes the one. And we don't believe in tritheism, where we overemphasize the three and deny the one. We believe in one God, one true and living God, and three persons. What do we do then with those questions we started with at the beginning? If someone says, why do you believe in Trinity? The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Well, the answer to that is quite simple. The, the Trinity is the name of the doctrine. But the doctrine's in the Bible. Do you believe God is 
omnipresent. Most Christians believe God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere at once. Guess what? The word omnipresent isn't in the Bible. Does that stop you from believing it? No. Because the doctrine is clearly taught in the Bible. So the name of the doctrine might not be in Scripture, but the doctrine itself clearly can be. What do you do with John 17, 3, where Jesus says, the Father is the only true God? You say, because of course he is. The Father is the true God, just as the Son is the true God, and the Spirit is the true God. Jesus is not saying there's a different God. We believe in one God. What do we do when Jesus then says, well, the Father is greater than I? How could the Father be greater than the Son? Well, if you look at a passage like Philippians 2, you'll see that the Son is equal to the Father of the same being, same God, fully God, and yet the Son has chosen to humble himself. Jesus has temporarily humbled himself in his incarnation and will be exalted again. So when we talk about Jesus saying the Father is greater than I, he's talking about the persons in the Trinity, that temporarily the Father is greater than I. I have humbled myself. I didn't seek the glory of something to be grasped, but made myself a servant. What about Colossians, where it talks about Jesus as the first creation? Well, actually, it doesn't say that Jesus is the first creation of God. It says he's the firstborn over creation. And in the Bible, especially in sort of ancient Near Eastern culture, firstborn <laughs> sounds so silly. Firstborn doesn't mean firstborn. That sounds so, it's like, no, Nicholas, of course it does. Well, but it, it, it's more like saying firstborn means the one who will inherit the authority. Um, so you talk about your, uh, it's almost more like saying executor of the will in some, in some sense. But firstborn doesn't mean first one created. It's the one who will have the inherent authority to rule. Notice it didn't say firstborn of creation. It said firstborn over creation. And so basically what that means is Jesus is the king of kings over creation. That he's the boss. Uh, he's, he's in charge of it all. Uh, and if you read even the next few verses in Colossians, it just says Jesus created all things for himself. That he, he's in charge of it all. He's not part of it. He's over it. Uh, and what about that question, of course, uh, did Jesus say he was God? Well, that one's pretty straightforward. You probably know the answer to it. Well, he actually really, really does. He really does say it. And so as Christians, we believe in one God, revealed in Scripture as Father, Son, and Spirit, all fully divine, three persons in relationship. Now, here's the thing. That sure sounds like a math problem to solve, doesn't it? It just sounds like, like if I'm, I wasn't confused before, like I feel more confused now. And you'll hear people say, well, it's not, it's not a problem to solve. It's a mystery to be enjoyed. It's something to be experienced. And one of the problems that I think we run into with the Trinity is we're so used to thinking with visual metaphors. It's really hard for us to imagine visually something having distinction in itself and yet being wholly uh, its own thing. So like if I have a red swatch of paint, and I have a yellow swatch of paint, and they come together, what happens? Become orange, right? Here we are, primary <laughs> color mixing class. Um, so the red and the yellow lose themselves in the orangeness. They can't actually stay red and yellow visually. We can't have distinction and sameness in the same sort of visual space. It's really hard for us to do. We either have one thing or we have three different things, but a thing can't be one and three at the same time visually. So what's really helpful actually is to think musically. 
in music, a thing can be one and three all the time. In music, you can have a, a note, and this note fills up the, the, all of our heard space at once, right? There's a oneness to the note. All of my heard, it's not just a visual. Now all of my heard space is filled with that one note. Now what happens if I add a second note? Well now it's still one thing filling the fullness of my heard space and yet there's distinction in what I've heard. We have two things happening and yet it's still just one thing. And now of course what happens when I add a third note? And we have a three note chord. God is much more like this chord than he is like the paint swatches. In the chord, I have a oneness. There's a oneness to the chord, and it fills the fullness of chordness. In the fullness of my heard space is one chord, and yet within this chord, there's three parts. We could go on. It's not just three parts individually, but each part is still fully filling the heard space. We could say it's still fully God, right? What, the other thing that happens in music, in piano, well, I've changed my chord, in piano, uh, is in the piano, if we were to look, each of those chords is vibrating the chords next, uh, the, each, sorry, each of the notes is vibrating the notes next to it, right? If played well, and if the piano's proper, um, there is resonance and vibration happening between these two notes as they play together. There's relationship between this note and this note and this note, and yet they are still one chord filling the wholeness of our heard space. And so in the same way, when we're invited then, and Jesus invites us into the love of the Father and the Son, he's inviting us into the fullness of relationship with the God who is three in one. In a sense, the chord of your life, the note of your life, is meant to vibrate to the chord of who God is. And when we play, when we hear God in a sense, or we think of God, there's both relationship between the notes in the oneness of God, and yet uh, that, that relationship, the, the, the way there's resonance between the notes is meant to start to vibrate notes around it, right? And that's the all-embracing love of God starting to reach out. Sometimes our visual metaphors fall short. We need audio or musical metaphors to help us think about God. What we're going to do is uh, we're going to pray and then we're going to turn to the table. We've talked about the all-embracing love of God, that the love between the Father and the Son expands to include us. What does Jesus say? That they may be one as you and I are one, he says to the Father. We're invited into the dance of the Trinity. That's the call that God has for us. He loves us so much that he wants to bring us into that same sort of love. And when we come to the table, it's a picture of Jesus' own life given for us. But it's also a picture of him inviting us to the table, that we are part of the embracing love of God. And he welcomes us to join him in the feast. So let's pray to that end. And uh, instead of having the table set up, which you may have noticed, um, I've asked if the pastoral team would help me, and we'd love to serve you. And so... Uh, There'll be four of us. I'm not sure what order we'll be in, but there'll be two of us here and two of us here. We invite you to come and receive. We're going to hold the trays um, and engage a little more relationally than sort of just self-serve method. Um, so if you guys want to come up and just wait up at the front, let's pray together. And then we'll have this meal, and then we'll have another meal.
Jesus, we thank you that you came and you died for us so that that which would hinder relationship to be put away, namely our sin and death. Lord, we thank you that um, the brokenness in relationships that grieves us should grieve us because it points to a breakdown in love. And love, Lord, is at the very center of who you are. Jesus, we thank you today that because of your work on the cross, you invite us into the love that you experience between the Father and the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you call us into the love of the Father and the Son. Father, we thank you that you sent the Son. We thank you, Jesus, that you were obedient to the cross. And we thank you for pouring out the Holy Spirit upon us. We thank you, God, that you are, all, you are at work in the call of redemption in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider relationship and community, even within yourself, we would be reminded that we are made for relationship and community with others. And so, Lord, we pray where there is breakdown in relationship that you would bring healing. And where there's hurt and brokenness in our marriages that you would bring life. Lord, where there's grief over the loss of loved ones that you would bring hope and comfort. And Lord, that ultimately we would find our rest and our home in your love, the love that you invite us into because you went to the cross for our sins. So as we come to this meal, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us afresh with your spirit and that you would send us out from this place with that sense of a deepening and all-embracing love that we would act in love toward those around us because you acted in love towards us when we were still sinners. You died for us. Lord, prepare our hearts for this meal, we pray. In your name, amen.